In the spring 1998 issue of Medical Professionals with CFIDS, also known as Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, or CFS, a disturbing article appeared by a Dr. Thomas Glass. It should have changed the course of chronic fatigue syndrome research, but it did not. Nicholas Regish discussed Dr. Glass in his book, The Virus Within, which was published in 2000. He wrote that Dr. Glass was, quote, a pathologist and dental surgeon at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. He had also served as chief dental expert to the medical examiner of the state of Oklahoma. Among his other scientific interests was the transmission of disease, which included novel research on how bacterial, fungal, and viral diseases could be transported by the common toothbrush. Because he enjoyed medical mysteries, he had also become preoccupied with chronic fatigue syndrome." End quote. According to Regish, Glass became interested in the plight of a woman with chronic fatigue syndrome who had a cat that developed a similar illness. Glass had heard a number of stories like that woman's. He apparently thought that if animals could get CFS from people, and vice versa, it would be an important development in the history of medicine. According to Regish, Dr. Glass put together a questionnaire for CFS patients, which resulted in the research paper titled, The Human-Animal Interaction of Chronic Fatigue and Immune Dysfunction Syndrome, a look at 127 patients and their 463 animals. In his paper, Dr. Glass wrote, quote, Throughout the recognized existence of chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome, anecdotal reports have linked domestic animals with chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome, but no formal scientific studies were reported. End quote. Cats and dogs were implicated by their owners most frequently. The usual association with the presence of the animal in the household of a chronic fatigue syndrome patient, followed by the development of strange diseases or dysfunctions in the animal, many of which mimic chronic fatigue syndrome. The severity of the diseases often necessitated euthanasia. In a fewer number of cases, the onset of chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome in the patient was associated with an exposure to a domestic animal, which was later found to show signs of chronic fatigue syndrome." End quote. Dr. Glass studied 127 patients. 97% of them had contact with animals, mostly indoor pets. Glass wrote, quote, the conclusion of this study was that CFIDS patients not only have pets, but that there is a significant animal interaction and that a large number of these animals have atypical or unusual diseases, which at least mimic chronic fatigue syndrome, end quote. In a second study, Glass looked at 348 animals, which showed signs of either dysfunction or disease. In this study, 122 animals, mostly cats and dogs, had neurological signs. 32 animals of the neurological category had lethargy, weakness, or sleep disorders. 30 animals in the neurological category had seizures, tremors, or tail twitching. 19 animals demonstrated hind limb dragging, myalgia, arthralgia, or Bell's palsy. 16 animals were anxious, depressed, moody, or demonstrated inappropriate behavior, including urination and defecation outside their litter box. 
15 animals had photophobia, ocular discharge, or blindness. 10 animals had deafness, ear sensitivity, or loss of balance, end quote. Dr. Glass concluded, quote, while the results of this study have certain subjective elements, the recurrent finding of certain symptoms that may be common to both the CFS patients and the animal warrant attention, it is important to consider the possibility that chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome may be transmitted from human to animal and or from animal to human. The results of these studies also need to alert the veterinary profession that should there be a possibility of animal to human transmission of chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome, veterinarians might want to consider the wearing of protective clothing, gloves, eyewear, and masks when examining animals. We have received a number of reports from veterinarians around the country, especially from female veterinarians, that they have had to substantially limit their practices due to fatigue and other chronic fatigue syndrome-like symptoms. Similarly, precautions need to be taken to prevent chronic fatigue syndrome from being transmitted from one animal to another animal, end quote. Eight years earlier, as the publisher and editor-in-chief of a newspaper in Manhattan called New York Native, I published a piece by journalist Nina Ostrom titled Murphy's Death. It began, quote, Murphy was five and a half years old when he first got sick. He became gradually worse, and less than two years later, the small, white, Maltese dog was put to sleep. Murphy's illness and subsequent death are important because one of the people in the house where he lived has chronic fatigue syndrome. Ruth, Murphy's owner, has an elevated level of antibodies to human herpes virus type 6, or HHV6. Murphy did too. Murphy suddenly mysteriously, according to Ruth, developed swollen lymph nodes in his neck as well as exhibiting unusual malaise. Murphy had always been the healthiest dog you could ever imagine, says Ruth. We just took him to the vet once a year for his shots. But then he got sick and his lymph nodes just kept swelling. They got to be the size of lemons. Several varieties of antibiotic were ineffective in treating the infection assumed to be causing Murphy's swollen lymph nodes. Ruth's veterinarian told her that he had never seen anything like this before. According to Ostrom, a biopsy was performed on the dog's lymph nodes. Ruth said to Ostrom, quote, The vet told us that Murphy had an autoimmune dysfunction similar to lupus. Other tests showed that he had liver and spleen damage. The vet also suspected, from his behavior, that Murphy had brain lesions, end quote. Finally, according to Ostrom, Murphy had to be put to sleep. Immediately afterwards, an adequate amount of blood was collected to perform some blood tests. Murphy was found to be positive for human herpes virus 6. Ostrom also reported that Ruth and her husband also had a cat, and the cat developed cancer, not the fairly common feline leukemia, but a malignancy of the immune system, lymphatic cancer. Eight years before the Thomas Glass paper, Ostrom reported in the New York Native that she had learned of a number of patients with chronic fatigue syndrome that had pets that had become ill. Ostrom wondered in her piece, quote, is HHV6 the culprit? Is this virus capable of infecting more than one species? End quote. 
How had a little newspaper gotten so involved in the epidemic of chronic fatigue syndrome in people and their pets? I was the publisher and editor-in-chief of New York Native, a newspaper that I had launched in December of 1980. Within a matter of months, my journey to the truth about the HHV6 epidemic of chronic fatigue syndrome in people and pets began in the form of the first AIDS story published anywhere in the world. Even Wikipedia, which is notoriously unreliable, got it right when some anonymous person wrote, quote, it was the only paper in New York City during the early part of the AIDS epidemic and pioneered reporting on AIDS when most others ignored it, end quote. In Rolling Stone in 1985, David Black wrote, quote, the gay press, with the exception of the New York native, which deserves a Pulitzer Prize for its comprehensive coverage of AIDS, hasn't been much better than the straight press, end quote. In his bestseller, And the Band Played On, Randy Schultz wrote, quote, because of the extraordinary reporting of the New York native, the city's gay community had been exposed to far more information about AIDS than San Francisco in 1981 and 1982, end quote. As the 80s rolled on, our universally praised early reporting on AIDS evolved into more controversial journalism when we began to catch the Centers for Disease Control in a series of lies, which are detailed in my book, Truth to Power. In her April 1986 New York Native piece on the outbreak of AIDS in Belle Glade, Florida, journalist Anne Giaducci Fetner reported on Gus Sermos, who had been a Centers for Disease Control surveillance officer for two and one half years in Florida. When Gus Sermos started to raise some serious questions about what was going on in the CDC's AIDS efforts in Florida, it had inspired an investigative series of articles in the Miami Herald, and he was punished by being summarily transferred back to a temporary assignment at the CDC's headquarters in Atlanta in what appeared to be a humiliating demotion. Sermos had suggested that CDC AIDS funds were not being properly used. He told Fetner that while on the job in Florida, he had, quote, uncovered fraud and mismanagement, cavalier attitudes on the part of the CDC, and general lying and cheating, end quote. He also told Fetner, quote, they hired me to do surveillance, but I found out that wasn't what they wanted at all. They didn't want to know anything about what's going on. CDC AIDS officials James Curran or Harold Jaffe come down and all they want to talk about is fishing, not AIDS. When I started in Florida, I had one supervisor. Then there were two, then three. This raft of people doing nothing but waiting for my reports to come in. But those Sermos reports were not appreciated. According to Fetner, he said it was like, quote, I was digging manure and putting it on their plates, end quote. He told her, quote, 90% of what they're doing up in Atlanta is public relations. For AIDS, there are four people in the field and 40 in Atlanta. If all they are doing with AIDS is lying about it, creating subterfuge, then why not disband them? 
He described the scientists working on AIDS with James Curran and Harold Jaffe in Atlanta as, quote, a bunch of kids right out of medical school because it's politically so unhealthy to get involved with the CDC AIDS task force that older doctors with experience don't want anything to do with it, end quote. One of the epidemiologically embarrassing things that Sermos uncovered in his surveillance was the presence of older people in Florida who had AIDS without risk factors, which was clearly a threat to the CDC's AIDS paradigm. Sermos was accused of not asking strong enough questions to prove that the people really did belong in the CDC's politically crafted risk groups. In retrospect, it seems like Sermos may have been staring at the part of the epidemic that is now called chronic fatigue syndrome. He told Fetner, quote, I'll tell you the truth. In my wildest dreams, I would never have thought they'd get away with what those guys have gotten away with as far as just being, if nothing else, just being bad showmen. And for forgetting that the show has any substance. Basically, it's like an old vaudeville show that's been running too long. I can't believe that house of cards in Atlanta can just stand up and take all the wind. I've told my wife, and I hate admitting it, but they are totally impervious to anything. If you say something disagreeable, you're either unpatriotic or you're a kook. I'm a citizen who sees a robber running out of the store and calls the cops, and the police arrest you and lock you up for reporting a crime. I wasn't going to be a whore for them. I felt like I was a guard at Auschwitz, a traitor. But they're traitors to their profession. And James Curran, head of the AIDS Task Force on AIDS, is not a scientist by any definition. He should be selling cars like his father, end quote. What is so uncanny about this story is that his description of the CDC's behavior in the investigation of AIDS would be echoed in everything the CDC eventually did in its fake investigation of chronic fatigue syndrome. They would treat anyone who said that chronic fatigue syndrome was a serious contagious disease involving the immune system as a kook. No wonder they couldn't acknowledge that millions of Americans were getting this form of AIDS as well as their pets, like the ones described by Dr. Thomas Glass's research. The fact that the CDC was able to behave this way for three decades shows that powerful institutional forces were keeping Sermos's so-called house of cards safely in place it may have seemed like a vaudeville act, but we have to remind ourselves that there were those in Germany who didn't think the Nazi leaders would amount to much because they resembled clowns. What made these Sermos revelations so historically important was that for the first time, word was publicly coming from an insider that there was something rotten in Denmark. People on the outside with growing doubts about the integrity of the CDC and its story about AIDS were not crazy. It became clearer and clearer in our reporting in the New York Native that what the CDC was hiding was the HHV6 epidemic, which we now know was causing illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome in people and their pets all over the world. But why? Why would the CDC lie about such a terrible thing? What was it about HHV6 that needed to be hidden? From our reporting, HHV6, the virus which had most likely killed Murphy the dog, was more likely to be the real evidence-based cause of AIDS 
than the virus HIV, which the CDC had insisted was the cause of AIDS. And if HHV6, the virus that killed Murphy, was the real cause of AIDS, that meant that everything the CDC had told the public about the AIDS epidemic was false. That would have resulted in a total loss of credibility for the Centers for Disease Control. So what is the truth about HHV6 that seems to have killed Murphy? The answer to that involves pigs and two scientists named Jane Tees and John Beldeckis. Back in 1983, I received a phone call from the now legendary writer John Berent, who was then an editor at Geo Magazine. He had just read an interesting hypothesis about the cause of AIDS in New Scientist, a colorful British scientific journal that is a mixture of serious and pop science. The brief article was about a letter that had been published in one of the world's leading medical journals, The Lancet. In the letter, a young scientist in Boston named Jane Tees proposed for the first time that AIDS might be caused by African swine fever virus. She pointed out that the symptoms of AIDS closely resembled those of African swine fever. She also noted that in Haiti, which also had a growing AIDS epidemic, there was simultaneously an epidemic of African swine fever virus in pigs. She hypothesized that vacationing gay men might have contracted the disease by eating undercooked pork. I instantly thought that the theory was reasonable and should be explored. It had the ring of truth to it. I discussed the hypothesis with James DeRamo, a man with a PhD in medical ecology and infectious diseases who had become our new science reporter, and I asked him to call Tease and arrange to interview her in Boston, which he did the following weekend. I was feeling very competitive about the story. I wanted New York Native to publish the first lengthy interview with her. When DeRamo got back from Boston and filled me in on her ideas, I was even more convinced that her hypothesis was the most compelling one I had heard in two years. We published his interview with Tease in the May 23, 1983 issue and started it on the cover with the headline, Is African Swine Fever the Cause? Three years after she first proposed the hypothesis that AIDS is caused by African swine fever virus, Jane Tease succeeded in testing her hypothesis in an American laboratory with her husband, epidemiologist James Hebert, and Boston University researcher John Beldeckis she obtained viral testing materials from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It was only because the press, mostly the New York native, had taken an interest in the matter that the USDA cooperated. Jane Tees and her two collaborators eventually obtained irradiated ASFV from Plum Island so that they themselves could test AIDS blood for the presence of the virus. They had waited months for the USDA to finally comply with their request. In the course of his ASFE experiments, Beldeckis also tested the blood from a pig from a local farm. Surprisingly, the pig's blood tested positive for African swine fever virus. When Beldeckis notified me, I called the USDA, assuming that alarms would go off because any discovery of swine fever in pigs in this country would be tantamount to a national agricultural emergency. The day after the USDA was notified, they flew three swine fever experts to Boston to consult with Beldeckis. Tease in a letter to Senator Edward Kennedy about the USDA's visit to Beldeckis wrote, quote, 
During their first visit, they indicated to Dr. Baldekis that they have data from slaughterhouse surveys indicating that pigs in New York, New Jersey, and Texas have been exposed to African swine fever virus. The work by Dr. Baldekis, however, is the first to show the presence of actual virus in a pig from the United States, end quote. Okay, so what does this have to do with HHV6, the virus that the dog Murphy was infected with? National Cancer Institute researcher Robert Gallo claimed to have discovered HHV6 in 1986, but there is reason to believe that he actually just gave African swine fever a new name. Gallo proposed that HHV6 was HIV's cofactor in AIDS. Actually, it raised the question in some circles of whether HHV6 was the cause and HIV was the cofactor. There was also the curious matter that Gallo discovered HHV6 shortly after being presented with data by a scientist that showed that African swine fever could be found in AIDS patients. I reported, quote, Dr. John Baldekis, now the director of clinical laboratories at Boston University and one of the proponents of the theory that African swine fever virus may be the cause of AIDS, told the native, well, it's about time. He's coming around to the possibility that a DNA virus may be causing AIDS. A few years ago, I tried to tell him that when I presented my research at a formal seminar at his laboratory at the National Cancer Institute. At that time, my colleague Jane Tease and I were convinced that African swine fever virus was the critical virus for the development of AIDS. It's very curious that two or three months after I gave him some of our materials to work on, he published a paper on his new DNA virus, end quote. Beldekis also told me, quote, no matter what HHV6 is, if these new findings are true, then you'd better stop HHV6 from replicating in AIDS patients, end quote. The great tragedy of HHV6 being found in the pets of people with chronic fatigue syndrome is that it connects chronic fatigue syndrome to the AIDS epidemic. Politically, that is bad enough, but it gets worse when you acknowledge the very distinct possibility that HHV6 is really African swine fever, one of the biggest threats to the pork industry. So unbeknownst to most people with chronic fatigue syndrome who have sick pets, the reason the truth can't be told about the underlying infection is that it has more to do with the pork industry and the USDA than the CDC and the NIH. The CDC and NIH may have their hands tied because the pork industry and the USDA would never willingly cooperate in the work needed to get to the bottom of the connection between HHV6, pigs, chronic fatigue syndrome, AIDS, and African swine fever. Peter Duisberg is a professor of molecular biology at the University of California in Berkeley. He moved to the United States from Germany in the 60s. In the New York Native, I published several interviews with Duisberg conducted by John Lauritsen, and Lauritsen included his interviews and articles on Duisberg in his book, The AIDS War. Duisberg was considered to be one of the world's leading experts on retroviruses. He was the recipient of a major multi-year grant from the National Institutes of Health, and many people thought he would one day win a Nobel Prize. But everything went south for him when he dared to speak up and tell the world that his extensive experience with retroviruses convinced him that there was no way that AIDS could be caused by HIV. 
In the interview conducted by Lauritsen, Duisburg said that HIV could not be the cause of AIDS because of the biochemical inactivity of the virus. He told Lauritsen, quote, even in patients who were dying from disease, the virus is almost undetectable, while RNA synthesis is essentially not detectable. So that is one of the key arguments, and there is no exception to the rule that pathogens, in order to be pathogenic, have to be active. He insisted very few potentially susceptible cells are ever infected, and those that are infected don't do anything. The virus just sits there, end quote. Peter Duisberg detailed his arguments about the nature of the AIDS epidemic and his struggle with the AIDS establishment in his book, Inventing the AIDS Virus, which was published by Regnery Publishing in 1998. In the publisher's preface, Alfred Regnery noted, quote, AIDS is the first political disease, end quote. In his acknowledgments, Duisberg wrote, quote, I extend my gratitude to my most critical opponents in the AIDS debate who have unwittingly provided me the great volume of evidence by which I have disproved the virus AIDS hypothesis and exposed the political maneuverings behind the war on AIDS, end quote. Insofar as Duisberg recognized that it all just didn't add up, he graciously performed a great humanitarian service over and over again by telling the world that as long as the HIV establishment was in charge of AIDS, we were all essentially trapped in a realm of unreliable and untrustworthy pseudoscience where people were going to get hurt. And luckily, for three decades, at great personal expense, Duisburg valiantly refused to shut up. Perplexed, Duisburg wrote, quote, Something is wrong with this picture. How could the largest and most sophisticated scientific establishment in history have failed so miserably in saving lives and even in forecasting the epidemic's toll, end quote. One of the more outrageous moments in his book occurs when Duisburg writes, quote, based on an anonymous source, key officials of the United States government specifically engineered a strategy for suppressing the HIV debate in 1987 while Duisburg was still on leave at the NIH. The operation began on April 28th, less than a month after Duisburg's first paper on the HIV question appeared in Cancer Research, apparently because several journalists and homosexual activists began raising questions, end quote. A memo about Duisburg's critique of the HIV theory was sent out from a staffer in the office of the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Quote, this obviously has the potential to raise a lot of controversy. If this isn't the virus, how do we know the blood supply is safe? How do we know anything about transmission? How could you all be so stupid, and why should we ever believe you again? And we need to be prepared to respond. I have already asked NIH Public Affairs to start digging into this, end quote. This is an extremely important memo from the point of view of future what did they know and when did they know it histories that try to fathom all the government's motivations throughout this scientific and political disaster. It shows how clearly at least one person and the government could see the potential dire consequences for the government being wrong about HIV. Somebody knew exactly what was at stake. In his book, Duisburg gives a number of examples of the media seeming to have been pressured by the HIV establishment not to cover the story of the controversy. According to Duisburg, quote, the McNeil Lair News Hour sent camera crews to do a major segment on the controversy, but when the broadcast date arrived, 
the feature had been pulled. Apparently, AIDS officials had heard of its imminent airing and had intercepted it, end quote. Television shows on Duisburg, including Good Morning America on ABC, CNN, Italian Television, and Larry King Live met with the same fate. According to Duisburg's book, Duisburg, quote, appeared on major national television only twice. The first time was on March 28, 1993, on the ABC magazine program Day One. Even in this case, according to the producer, Anthony Fauci tried to get the show canceled days before the broadcast, end quote. When Duisburg was interviewed for Nightline, he ended up only being given a small amount of airtime, and Anthony Fauci showed up and was given the lion's share of the show to make the HIV establishment's case. And Duisburg fared no better overseas. The British medical and public health establishment greeted a pro-Duisburg program with stern condemnations, and subsequently the British press began attacking the program. One of the most interesting moments of censorship occurred at the highest level of government when Jim Warner, a Reagan White House advisor critical of what he considered AIDS alarmism, became aware of Duisburg's critique of the HIV theory of AIDS and arranged a White House debate in January 1988. Duisburg writes, quote, This would have forced the HIV issue into the public spotlight but it was abruptly canceled days ahead of time on orders from above, end quote. Duisburg didn't fare much better with the print media. He notes that the New York Times had written about him only three times in the first seven years of the controversy, and all of it was negative. The same kind of treatment was doled out by the Washington Post and the San Francisco Chronicle intended to cover the story until it encountered opposition from scientists in the local AIDS establishment. Even the alternative press could not be counted on to give the controversy balanced or independent-minded coverage. Duisburg reports, quote, In 1989, Rolling Stone had commissioned a freelance writer from New York to write a Duisburg article, but then canceled it during the interview with Duisburg in his lab, end quote. Both Harper's and Esquire killed articles that had been commissioned on Duisburg during the same period. Unfortunately, he never paid much attention to the HHE6 epidemic, which seemed to be causing the chronic fatigue syndrome form of AIDS in millions of people and their pets. But his critique of the HIV theory of AIDS played a major role in my decision to take a close look at HHE6 and the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic in people and their pets. Another scientist who doubted the HIV theory was Carrie Mullis. Carrie Mullis is a biochemist who won the 1993 Nobel Prize for the polymerase chain reaction. He, like Duisburg, was eventually troubled by the lack of evidence that HIV is the cause of AIDS. In the foreword he wrote for Duisburg's Inventing the AIDS Virus, he reported on the events that led to his criticism and ultimate confrontation with the AIDS establishment. Muller had been hired by a firm called Specialty Labs to set up analytical routines for HIV. In the process of writing a report on the progress of his project, he went in search of support for the statement that was going to appear in the report that namely, quote, HIV is the probable cause of AIDS, end quote. Mullis was puzzled that there was no paper to be found containing definitive proof of the statement and one that was continually referenced in the scientific papers about the epidemic. He was puzzled that such a large enterprise involving so many scientists and growing numbers of sick and dying people did not rest on a solid foundation of a published paper that established with great certainty 
that HIV was the probable cause. A computer search came up with nothing. He started asking for the definitive reference at scientific meetings, but after attending 10 or 15 meetings over a period of a couple of years, he was getting pretty upset when no one could cite the reference. In a chapter on AIDS in his own book, Dancing Naked in the Mind Field, Mullis angrily described the world of AIDS research, quote, In 1634, Galileo was sentenced to house arrest for the last eight years of his life for writing that the earth is not the center of the universe, but rather moves around the sun. Because he insisted that scientific statements should not be a matter of religious faith, he was accused of heresy. Years from now, people looking back at us will find our acceptance of the HIV theory of AIDS as silly as we find the leaders who excommunicated Galileo. Science as it is practiced today in the world is largely not science at all. What people call science is probably very similar to what was called science in 1634. Galileo was told to recant his beliefs or be excommunicated. People who refuse to accept the commandments of the AIDS establishment are basically told the same thing. If you don't accept what we say, you're out. End quote. Rebecca Colshaw is another brilliant critic of the HIV paradigm of AIDS. Colshaw received her PhD in 2002 for work constructing mathematical models for HIV infection, a field of study she had entered in 1996. In an essay, Why I Quit HIV, available online, she said that her entire adolescence and adult life, quote, has been overshadowed by the belief in a deadly, sexually transmitted pathogen and the attendant fear of intimacy and lack of trust that belief engenders, end quote. During her work on AIDS, she came to realize, quote, that there is good evidence that the entire basis for this theory is wrong. It seems it is not a disease so much as a socio-political construct that few people understand and even fewer question, end quote. At one point earlier in her life, she was led to believe that she had contracted AIDS and she took an HIV test. She spent two weeks waiting for the results, convinced she was going to die, and blaming herself for whatever she might have done to cause the development. She tested negative and, quote, vowed not to take more risks, end quote. Ten years later, when she was a graduate student analyzing models of HIV and the immune system, she was surprised to discover that virtually every mathematical model of HIV infection she studied was unrealistic. She concluded that the, quote, biological assumptions on which the models were based varied from author to author, end quote. She was also puzzled by the stories of long-term survivors of AIDS and the fact that all of them seemed to have one thing in common, very healthy lifestyles. It made her suspect that, quote, being HIV positive didn't necessarily mean you would ever get AIDS, end quote. The epidemiology completely puzzled her. The fact that the number of HIV positives in the U.S. has remained constant at around one million seemed to make no sense. She wrote, quote, It is deeply confusing that a virus thought to have been brought to the AIDS epicenters of New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles in the early 1970s could possibly have spread so rapidly at first yet have stopped spreading as soon as testing began, end quote. She had entered the gates of what I call the opposite world of totalitarian, Orwellian, abnormal science where the numbers of positives could remain constant because their origins were political and not based on factuality. 
She also thought that the theories about how HIV destroyed T cells didn't add up and was disturbed that after so many years of study, there was still no biological consensus about the manner in which HIV did its dirty work. Kulsha was frustrated by the fact that, quote, there are no data to support the hypothesis that HIV kills cells. It doesn't in the test tube. It mostly just sits there as it does in people, if it can be found at all, end quote. The shocking fact that Robert Gallo had originally only found the virus in 26 of 72 AIDS patients was also a dramatic strike against the notion that it was the cause of AIDS. Kulshaw found further support for her growing skepticism in the testing for HIV, which relies on antibody tests rather than searching for the virus itself because, quote, there exists no test for the actual virus, end quote. The fact that so-called viral load tests relied on sophisticated PCR techniques that had never actually been tested against a gold standard of HIV itself made the whole enterprise of HIV testing look like a cruel and dangerous farce. The fact that the criteria for a positive result for the antibody varied from country to country also undermined the credibility of the HIV tests. Kulshaw concluded, quote, I have come to sincerely believe that the HIV tests do immeasurably more harm than good due to their astounding lack of specificity and standardization. A negative test may not be accurate, whatever that means, but a positive one can create utter havoc and destruction in a person's life, all for a virus that most likely does absolutely nothing. I do not feel it is going too far to say that these tests ought to be banned for diagnostic purposes. End quote. She indicted thousands of her intellectual and professional colleagues when she wrote, quote, After ten years involved in the academic side of HIV research, as well as in the academic world at large, I truly believe that the blame for the universal, unconditional, faith-based acceptance of such a flawed theory falls on those among us who have actively endorsed a completely unproven hypothesis in the interest of furthering our careers. Kulshaw summed up her thoughts on AIDS in a brief but brilliant book, Science Sold Out, which was published two years later by North Atlantic Books. The book is so tautly written and sizzles with so much moral outrage that one could say that she was the Thomas Paine, or one of them, of what I call AIDSgate or the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome cover-up. She opens the book with an anecdotal challenge to HIV from her personal life. Quote, the boyfriend of a woman I work with died suddenly this year from a raging infection. He became very ill and his immune system collapsed, unable to handle the infection, and he died. He was not HIV positive, but if he had been, he would have been an AIDS case. End quote. Without realizing it, the man who died might have been part of the non-HIV AIDS epidemic, otherwise known as chronic fatigue syndrome, which was affecting millions of people and their pets. These are just three of the many scientists and intellectuals who did not think there was credible evidence to support the HIV theory of AIDS. They were all punished in different ways for speaking out. Their reputations were tarnished, or they experienced serious career setbacks, or both. Eleanor Burkett is an American journalist, author, film producer, and documentary director. A film produced by her, Music by Prudence, won the 2009 Academy Award for Best Documentary, Short Subject, on March 7, 2010. She got very interested in the subject of AIDS when she was working as a reporter 
and she ultimately wrote a book about it called The Gravest Show on Earth. Her publisher described her book this way, quote, Not since the band played on has any journalist taken readers behind the scenes in the war against AIDS to reveal how avarice, ignorance, and egotism are subverting the nation's struggle against the epidemic. Eleanor Burkett goes beyond Randy Schultz reporting on aspects of the plague he did not cover and finding answers to the deeper questions of what AIDS reveals about America on the brink of the millennium, end quote. One of the most historically important pieces she ever wrote was published in the Miami Herald on December 23, 1990. It was titled, Is HIV Guilty? And it ends with these ominous words, quote, If HIV is not the sole cause of AIDS, then the effort to fight the disease is in chaos. In fact, we wouldn't even know what disease or how many different diseases we are fighting. HIV is the glue that holds together an amorphous syndrome of usually common and non-lethal ailments that are hitting uncommon groups of people or becoming strangely lethal. If HIV is not the sole cause of AIDS, then five years of desperate searching for a way to kill a virus in already infected people, a feat that has never been accomplished with any virus, might have been spent more productively on another course of research. For scientists, the idea at this late date that HIV is not a lone assassin is the worst possible news. In the bars outside medical conferences and in off-the-record conversations, dozens of AIDS researchers admit they are disturbed by the persistent failure of the most monumental medical research effort in the nation's history to yield clear proof that HIV is a lone assassin. Yet in public and on the record, few will express those doubts. I'd bet my professional reputation that something more than HIV is involved in this disease, said one federally funded AIDS researcher, but I wouldn't bet my grants my ability to work. If there is fear about questioning the established line of thought, it is not because there is any conspiracy against skeptics. It is the intuitive understanding that the last thing anybody wants to hear is what the skeptics are saying. It is just too scary.